It's going to continue to be uh, problematic as we get further and further into this year as well. I don't think things will change much, uh, at least like Ricky said in the, in the meantime, um, in the short term. But God is always faithful. I'm just reminded of Second Chronicles chapter 20, a real popular chapter there, a story there in the, the life of Judah. In chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat is, is taken back because this mighty army is coming against them. And I love what he says in verse 12, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you, and the Lord works a great miracle, a great victory there for the kingdom of Judah and uh, the people who are coming against them, three or four different people, groups coming against them, all turn on one another and destroy one another, and God brings victory for his people. May that happen for us in this coming year with whatever the enemy would bring against us. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, not Chronicles, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We have begun a new year, and that's good news, right? Anybody glad that 2020 is over? And this is probably for us that are beyond 30. This is the first time in our life we've ever said, I'm ready for a new year, right? Uh, we're always like, man, I, I don't want to get older. Th- time's going too fast. We need to slow it down. We look at the age of our children, how they're growing so quickly, and we think, can we at least push pause on life? Can we rewind a little bit? Can I live life a little slower? Now, in this age that we're living, we seem to want to run past 2020 and get on to the new year. And so we are now in 2021. And so on some level, it's out with the old, it's in with the new. And fortunately, uh, when you think about the beginning of a new year, it doesn't always mean that change or the removal of bad things from our life are going to happen. It doesn't mean it's going to take place. However, new years, new days, uh, the, the year or the new day of the year, I should say, do provide for us a visible marker, an opportunity to choose to change course, to choose to start over. Doesn't mean that things change immediately, but it's a marker for us to say, you know what? I want to change course. I want to alter some things in my life. I want to start fresh. And so one of the things that many people do, as I shared last week, is they, they come up with resolutions. This new year, I want to do this, or I want to do that, or I no longer want to do some of the things that I've been doing. Instead, I want to change course. And so we make new year resolutions. Unfortunately, and I shared this last Sunday as well, that many of our resolutions that we make fail. You know, it's estimated that 80% of our resolutions will fail because I believe they lack the crucial ingredient that's needed for our resolutions to become reality in our life. And that is people fail to enlist others to come on the journey with them. You see, one of the things we need to help us to move forward in our life, to make different changes that result in different uh, 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 results, is that we need people to come alongside of us. We need accountability and we need relationships. We need other human beings in our life. We need people. Let, I mean, let's just say it this morning. We need people. I don't ever ask for interaction. I'm asking for it this morning. We need people. That was pitiful. It's like you didn't even believe what you're saying. One more time. We need people. You need people, and I need people. We've been in a series on the church for the last several weeks. This is message number nine. And in this series, we've looked at the Bible's description of who the church is. You know, as we talk about the fact that we are a people, we need a people because we are a people and we are this together, right? And so all throughout this series, we've discovered that one principle. We are a people. We're a preaching people. 
We're a theological people. We're a gospel people. We're a converted people. We're not just a bunch of religious people. We're converted. We're evangelistic. We're committed. We're disciplined. And we are a growing people as we looked at this past Sunday. This morning we're going to round out and close this series talking about how we are also a congregational people. A congregational people. So as we have begun to better understand this Christian thing, this church thing, I hope we're beginning to understand that to do this Christian thing, to do this church thing, it can't be an individual race. It has to be an all-together type of race, a team race. You know, back in high school, if you can remember that far back, for me it's beginning to get really, really fuzzy because it's been so long. But in high school, I ran track. And I, so I was a sprinter and, and a long jumper. And I, you know, I'm not a runner. If you guys um, spend much time with me and we get to talking about physical activity, I'm not a cardio guy. I find it boring and laborious and, and just I'm, everything. Every time I'm on a, a, a treadmill or a stepper or if I'm out bicycling or whatever, I'm always thinking how much longer till I can stop. Any witnesses to that? You're like, I testify, that's where I'm at. I'm not a cardio guy. I find re- running rather boring. I know some of you are just running fanatics. More power to you. May the Lord add members to your tribe, but I won't be one of those. <laughs> um, but in high school, I did run track. And so I started out as a, as a long distance in junior high. I hit my growth spurt, which you can tell I just really filled out growth spurt wise height. Um, but I, I became a sprinter in high school and I became a long jumper as well. So I did that. And one of the things I loved about track, m- minus the running part, again, that's why I was a sprinter, short distance, done, go sit down. But the, one of the things I loved about track was the fact that it was an individual activity, an individual competition. So when I got down in the blocks and, and I was ready for the gun to fire, it was me against all seven other people on the track with me. Or it was me against all the other people who were long jumping against me. It was an individual type of competition. So I liked that type of competitiveness. And so when that, that gun fired and I shot out of the blocks, it wasn't always just an individual race. Though I'm competing myself against the other people, I began to learn as a track runner that the team was just as important as my individual effort in track. Because when I shot out of the blocks, usually behind everybody else, the team came around and cheered me on throughout the race or cheered me on throughout that competition of long jumping or whatever the, the event might have been. The team also came alongside in practice and held me accountable and, and pushed me harder and harder and harder to get better at what I was seeking to do. So even though track is an individual sport, it's It's also a team sport. Sounds a whole lot like the church. See, as a follower of Jesus, I have an individual relationship with the Lord Jesus, but my personal walk with Christ also is incumbent upon the people of God that he's placed me in and around, where they feed on me and I feed on them and we encourage each other in this race called the Christian life. It's a whole lot like what it means to be a congregational people. God has placed his children on a team. This team is called the church. It finds its expression in the local church. And so as we talk about church, I hope you begin to understand this. We're not talking big and large all the time. More specifically, we're usually talking about the local church. And I've said this many times, but we need to be reminded of this. Christianity is not individualistic. It is corporate in nature. So your Christian life is a corporate, has a corporate aspect to it. 
See, the Bible knows nothing of a lone ranger Christianity. You'll never find that in the pages of the New Testament. You won't find that in the pages of the Old Testament where the people of God are living independently apart from other believers. You won't find it. That's not the prescription that God's given us. It's always in the context of community. And so the Bible knows nothing of this lone rangerism that we find in America today. But instead, it reveals that God has graciously provided the relationships and the accountability needed for your growth and for my growth. And that's found in the church to help us to run, but not just run, to finish the race. I love how Paul summed up his life there in 2 Timothy as he was writing his last epistle, his last letter to Timothy. And he says, I have run the race. I have ran the race. I've finished the race. Ready to go on. May it be true of us. How do we get there? We get there through the church. This is a good and gracious gift that God has given to us. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me kind of just set the stage of what's going on here in this letter, specifically what's happening in chapter 14. And then we're going to read the first 26 verses. I'm going to come back, share three things with you about what it means to be a congregational people, and then we will close out this sermon series. 1 Corinthians as you probably know, is a letter or an epistle written by the Apostle Paul, written to the believers there in the city of Corinth, a major city in the country of Greece. And so this, this church, this group of people are regenerate. They have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you read through the pages of this letter, you don't see a lot of semblance to what, it, what a church ought to look like. They don't look like they're, they're born-again believers. They don't look like they're regenerate and they're walking with the Lord Jesus. In fact, what they look like is a bunch of sinners, and that's what they were, sinful believers living sinful lives. And so Paul writes this letter to confront their sin, to rebuke them of their sin, and call them them to faith and repentance. As you probably know, 1 Corinthians shows us here that some of the sins that they were engaged in were, was gross sexual immorality. Chapter 5 lays some of that out for us. We also see in, in the subsequent chapters there that these people, these, these people of God were suing one another. They were abusing the Lord's Supper, and they even bragged about their spiritual gifts. They were jockeying for position within the church based upon their giftedness. There was little love, little support for one another on this team, which Paul points out and rebukes. And so instead, in place of that, he points them to a better path, a better way. He urged the Corinthians to pursue love and to use their gifts to serve one another. They were, after all, think about this, members of the body of Christ. They were a congregational people. And so let's look and see what Paul has to say to this bunch of sinful believers there in the city of Corinth. Look at verse 1. Paul says this, it's coming right out of on the heels of chapter 13, the chapter on love, which is in and of itself a, a correction to their misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. So he's telling them in chapter 13 that love is the best thing. Love is the thing to pursue. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no, one who, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. 
On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. They are doubtless many different tongues or many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager, to, eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And the law is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even if they will not listen to me, says the Lord, thus... Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, it, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that, he, he, that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. I hope you caught on in those 26 verses to a, a word that was used often. The word that, that's translated to be built up or to build up. He talks about building up the church. He talks about instructing others. And so here in these verses, I want to lay out here three things about what it means to be a congregational people. First of all, as a congregational people, we or the church is comprised of individual believers who are one together. Back in 2016, I did a whole sermon series on this idea of community that we called it One Together, the series is. And so uh, if you were here, I would encourage you to go back and listen through that series. If you're new to Red Lane since 2016, I would encourage you to go back and, and work through that series. It's a great study just talking about community and how it's progressively revealed through Scripture. It begins in God himself, community within the Trinity. It's fleshed out in his creation, his creation of Adam and Eve and all of there was. And then even after the fall, how he 
brings community back to this sinful world that is continually moving toward isolation. And so it finds its culmination in Christ on the cross, the gospel message, and the church being born. And so we are, as a people, created for community and redeemed to be in community with God and with others. So with that in mind, I just want to ask you a couple questions. I want you to think through this for a moment or two. Why are you a part of this local church? It's a question I always ask people when we're going into membership, and we'll have a short members meeting just right after this service, and uh, we'll vote on a, a, a young, or a young, a, a family to, uh, I shouldn't say young, I'm sorry about that, Sandy. <laughs> we'll mess with him. I'm not saying anything, brother. I'm not saying anything. But we're going to be voting on them to join our church. But think about it. This is a question I always ask people. Why is the Lord leading you to Red Lane? Why are you a part of this local church? Here's another question. Do you understand all that Jesus has done for you? Uh, do you understand how he's brought you into community of the community of his body? Those are questions that we need to think through, questions we need to have answers to when we think about what it means to be a part of Christ's church, his local body of Christ, right here where we are. Why are we a part of this? There's a lot of misconceptions around the idea of what it means to be a part of a church. Let me give you just two common misconceptions that I regularly encounter when, I, when we talk about community in the church. First, there's the idea that it's not important for a Christian to be a member or to be a participant in a local church. Think about that. And people will say something like, well, you, you know, the, the thief on the cross, he, he was a member of a church and he's in heaven. Absolutely. There are, ex, uh, there are extreme situations in every realm, right? There, there's always that exception to the rule. But when you think about community, there's no question that the Bible would call us and lead us into community. And so a, a simple response to this sort of sentiment would be this. Sure, you can be a Christian without joining a church, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You can be a Christian. Here's what I've heard some people say. You can be a Christian, but you can't be a good one. I think that's a pretty good response because we've talked throughout this series. We need one another to grow spiritually and to grow in our relationship with the Lord. So it doesn't make sense to be a believer, but not be a part of a bunch of other believers called the church. It's kind of like a soldier without an army or a seaman without a ship. It's like a businessman who has no business or a tuba player who's not in an orchestra. It's like a football player without a team or a bee without a hive. So it's at best abnormal and it's at its worst indicative of an unregenerate heart, a heart that's not been born again in Christ. Again, the Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. And so here's a second misconception. It's the idea that one's presence or absence really doesn't make a difference in that local church. The misconception here is that believers, that the believer is nothing more than a spectator who's watching the game rather than a player in the game. Today is the last day of the regular season for the NFL, and so many of you Redskin fans, you're on the edge of your seat. You can't wait for the preaching to be over, small group to be over, so you can get home and watch your team. They didn't play, right, yesterday? I hope this, my illustration is going to fall on its face if they played yesterday, but I don't think they did. And, and so you're ready to get home because you know if they win the game, they go to the playoffs. If they lose, they're out, right? So you're on the edge of your seat. You're waiting for that moment for your team to win. 
But how successful would your favorite team be if a handful of the players, a handful of the coaches, or the equipment handlers decided they did not feel like going to the game? Truth is, they wouldn't be very successful at all. If you've been paying attention to college football over the last week or so, as these bowls have been trying to roll out, we've seen many players opt out and just say, you know what, I'm not going to play, it's not important to me, or I'm going to go ahead and get ready for the NFL. And if you think about the Florida game the other night, they got destroyed. Why? Because three of their top receivers and their top tight end all opted out of the game. That happens all the time in the local church. I don't need to be there. It's no big deal. I'll just set this one out. Why why do we do that? Just because we feel like we're nothing more than a spectator and we add nothing to the experience. Truth is, we are all vitally important. We are all an essential. That's a term we've been using this past year. We are all an essential worker in this thing called the church. That's what we see in the New Testament reveals that Jesus has placed each believer into a community of faith whereby the members make up one body called the church. So the Christian faith, outside of personal salvation, it knows nothing of individualism. It only knows and speaks of corporateness. So faith in Christ should be understood in the context of community. I like how Brad House puts this in his book on small groups. He says, Christianity is not an individual sport. We are part of a team. We have to be more than collection of individuals who occasionally gather together, we need a corporate sense of our identity. A gospel-centered community will find their identity in Jesus individually and corporately. I think Brad House is on to something there. This corporate identity is exactly what Paul lays out to the Corinthian church. Listen to how he begins this letter to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I just want to break this down for us real quickly. Who's he addressed the letter to? The believers in Corinth, right? To the church in Corinth. Now, you Greek scholars, you know the Greek word that's oftentimes, if not always translated for church, is the term ekklesia, right? It's one term made from two Greek terms. This is where I'm going to prove that I don't really know much about Greek except for a few things. This, this term made up of two words is the, ek, is the preposition ek, which is translated from or out, right? And then it's kaleo, the verb, to call. And so literally, the, 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 the two words put together, ek kaleo, would mean to call out or to summon to yourself. And so you turn it around, and the noun derivative, ekklesia, means the called out ones or those who have been called out from something else. That's what the church is. When Jesus calls to us through the gospel, he calls us out of, his, out of darkness into light, out of secularism, out of atheism, out of idolatry, out of our sin, into relationship with himself. But it's not just individually he calls us together as the body of Christ this term reveals how the church is made up of those who've been called out of the darkness and into the light of Christ's grace and so Paul goes on to reveal that these believers were not left to live out their faith in Christ alone they were called look at the verse again to be saints together Think about what Jesus did when he called you to faith in Jesus. He didn't say, hey, come follow me and do it on your own. 
He says, come follow to me, and you're together going to be the body of Christ. I mean, think about his disciples. He didn't just go and get James or John or one of the others. He brought them together collectively as a team. And even when he sent them out, how did he send them out? Two by two. They're always together. There's something about the corporate nature of the church that we need not (coughs) and dare not lose sight of. This corporate nature provides encouragement, it provides growth, and it provides protection for us as Christ followers. We, as believers, work together. Think about what we do. We bless one another. We encourage one another. And all of this reveals a second thing about the church. As a congregational people, we are one together. But secondly, the desire of individual believers is to use their giftedness to build up the church. Look back there in chapter 14. We're going to look at some of these verses here. The Corinthian church, as I said earlier, was steeped in sin. It was steeped in selfishness. I mean, the jockeying, the competitiveness, all of that. It was indicative of a very loveless and competitive church. These members boasted about and misused their spiritual gifts. Thankfully, we can read this and say, well, at least they knew what their spiritual gift was. Because today in the local church, I don't know that we really know what our spiritual gifts are at times. But regrettably, they missed the point of the gifts. God had given these gifts of grace to serve others and not serve themselves. But the Corinthians instead used them for their own selfish gain. They did not understand that they were for the common good of the body of believers. We would see Paul speak to that in chapter 12, verse 7. And so they pursued the gift of tongues because it made them seem more spiritual in the eyes of others. How many times is... How many times do the things that we've been gifted by the Lord, we turn around on their face and we use them for our our own self-edification? Whatever it may be, a spiritual gift, a physical gift. We need to always think in the context of this is not for me, but it's for others. And so Paul here is correcting their behavior by pointing out their fallacies. So he talks about and and speaks to this gift of tongues. Uh, I personally believe the gift of tongues has always been in the context of evangelism, always been in the context of speaking in a known language so that the gospel can travel over that bridge. We see it there at Pentecost as those Jewish believers, those Jewish worshipers had come back to Jerusalem for that annual sacrifice, there the, 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 the people of God, the followers of Jesus, were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, began to prophesy, began to speak in these tongues, languages that they did not know or speak, but they were speaking, and the people heard the gospel and were drawn to know more. And so then Peter, as you know, stands up, he preaches the gospel, and most likely preached it in the Aramaic uh, language, a language that he spoke, and people responded and came to faith. 3,000, the Bible tells us, were added to the church, or made up the church there at its beginning. Uh, Here, some of these Corinthians had been given the gift of tongues, but apparently they misused it for their own benefit. Others wanted the gift. They saw that, that these people who had this gift were kind of maybe put on a pedestal, and they wanted it even though they didn't have it. So the result was a competitive church where they were jockeying against one another, right? Jockeying for position, trying to outdo one another, maybe stabbing one another in the back, speaking ill of each other. All of the things, unfortunately, that we still see in the local church today. So you have a competitive church, which led to a confused community. People walk in and 
People are fighting. There's no love here. It looks nothing like the life of Jesus. There's no semblance to Jesus whatsoever. And, and so it's just everything that, that's wrong in the world is in the church. And you think, why do I need that mess? I've got mess in my home or I've got mess in my community. I don't need this Jesus thing. So you've got a confused community. And all of their misuse of gifts, there's a clear display of a lack of love for one another. And so Paul instructed them to pursue love there in verse 1 and to desire the gift of prophecy. Now, when you hear that term, it's not like the prophets of the Old Testament where they're speaking, thus saith the Lord. It's more in the context of being able to take the word of God and deliver it. Now, at this point, there is no um, written word. In fact, this letter to these believers rebuking them of their sin is what becomes the the written word of God. And so it's still though speaking on behalf of God, but in the context of biblical, if you will, instruction. And so the reason for this encouragement is because gifts were not given to, to be ends of themselves. They were given for the building up of the church. We see that over and over again. Look at verse five. So that the church may be built up. Verse 12. He says, so with yourselves, since you are eager to, for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He says in verse 17, much the same. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And then verse 19, he carries the same idea. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind and instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because it's about building and instructing the church. And then verse 26 he says, let all things be done for building up. You see, today the local church still struggles to combat individualism. That doesn't necessarily, hopefully, look like this Corinthian mess, but it's still here. We combat this, this idea, this concept, this, I, this mentality all throughout our lives as Americans and as American Christians. See, what believers need to realize is that they do not choose, on, choose to be on an individual level to come to church. Let me say that again. When believers need to realize is that they do not choose on an individual, individual level to come to church to see what they can get out of it. They should instead come to see what they can give. Here's what I see so many times in my 20 years or so in, in church ministry is that a whole lot of people come to church on Sunday just to go home. It's a spectator. I go to the movies, I watch a movie, and I go home. I, I go to a game, I love those things, but I'm there as a spectator. I do my thing, and I go home. I'm not giving anything to the equation. I'm simply a recipient of it. And that's what we do in the church. Spectators rather than participants. Mark Dever points out that they should not use the preacher as a public lecturer or a personal spiritual trainer to solely, solely better themselves. Why do we stress so much here at this church why you should be reading the Bible yourself? Because if you're only getting fed for the 35, and I'm being gracious there, it's more like 45 minutes every Sunday that I preach, you're going hungry. How many of you eat for 35 minutes a week? 169 hours, 168 hours in a week. How many of you are only eating 35 to 45 minutes? You're lying if you're only eating that much because I'm looking at you. You'd be skinny as a rail. I'm not saying you're fat. Don't take it that way. So what we need to do as believers is embrace a corporate nature to our faith. 
Show love, show concern for other members, be involved in others' lives, come to give, not just receive. Using our giftedness, spiritual gifts, physical gifts, all to build and to bless the church. There's a third thing we need to do to understand as a congregational people, and that is all things are to be done orderly. All things are to be done orderly. Latter part of verse 26 says, let all things be done for building up. Verse 40, the end of the chapter says, but all things should be done decently and in order. So, bookend this here. Everything should be done for the building up of the body and do it orderly. That's what Paul's saying. That's exactly was not what was not happening in the Corinthian church. It was not orderly and it was not for, being, for the building up of others. But what we see is that these two statements by Paul should go together. When a building is being constructed, think about this. There must be a plan and if there's no plan, it's chaos. Imagine for a moment the building that's being constructed out back here. What if the contractor and the suppliers had two different sets of plans. Think about how chaotic that would be. You've got trusses being delivered like we were delivered a few months ago, and those things are, are designed for a completely different floor, floor plan and, and, and roof line than what the contractor has. You would have things that never could work together. It would be absolute chaos and be an absolute disaster. Much of the Corinthians' problems revolved around this sort of idea. They were all about exhibition rather than edification. And this contributed to this growing disorderliness within the church. But thankfully, God has spoken to us and told us what should be present in the church, what order should be there. And, and, and you're not going to find as you look through scriptures, and I, many times I wish it was there. But you're not going to read through the New Testament and find a, a perfect constitution for a church. This is how you're to line yourselves up. This is what the bylaws should be. This is the committees you should have. Here's every aspect of, of how you select those committee members and team members. And you're not going to find that in the Bible. God didn't give us all of that, but he gave us guiding principles for how a church ought to be structured and how it should function orderly. And so allow me to speak to, to just three specific areas of order briefly. First of all, the church should be done, should be organized orderly in its leadership. Orderly in its leadership. Now we see in places throughout the New Testament uh, words on this or teachings on this. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16, Paul lays out there gifts to the church. He says there's, there's, the, there's uh, apostles and, and, and prophets and evangelists and pastors, excuse me, pastor teachers. There's a, there, these gifts that are given to teach and oversee what is being taught. And so the pastor teacher, which is what we have here in our church, and I don't have time to get into that, all of that uh, about Ephesians chapter four, but, but the pastor elders, I believe, are, what, are to shepherd the flock of God. Those are laid out for us in scripture, qualifications given. And, and so we know who these people are and what they should be like and what, there should be, what they should be doing. And these leaders, they're out front leaders. They're taking initiative. They're leading the way by example. The Bible tells us that these leaders, leaders are to equip the saints, the members of the body with instruction to help them to carry out the ministry of the church. All throughout the New Testament, we see that it speaks of a plurality of pastor elders who are servant leaders, as well as deacons who are leading servants. Those are some of the terms that we've used here to define these two offices. So there's to be orderly in its leadership. Secondly, the church is to be orderly in trust. Now, trust is a big thing, right? How many of you trust everybody and anybody in your life? 
No, I don't see any hands at all. Trust is many times earned, right? Uh, trust is something that can be taken really quickly. Anytime that you're, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I'll have an opportunity to, to speak to a, an individual or a couple who's had an, an area of infidelity in their relationship, whether it's married or unmarried. Anytime that happens, trust is strained, if not broken, and almost impossible to regain it. But we have to have trust or we can't work together. And so our trust is to be orderly. Paul lays out your qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. There he tells us that these men are first to exemplify godly leadership in the homes. So there will be reason to trust them with the leadership of the church. They should model love. They should model service. They should model self-control. And when those qualities are present in the home life of the pastors, the church will have no problem following and trusting their leadership. So we are orderly in our trust. And thirdly, orderly in authority. You know, the Bible has much to say about leadership in the local church. And in every discussion of it that I've seen, the Bible always assumes a congregational context. I remember five years ago when we implemented um, the church polity we have right now, our church governance, right? That's what that word polity means. Uh, That we were moving from, I hate to say historical Baptist model because it's not historical at all. It's just a, a late 19th century to the 20th century Baptist model of a single pastor elder with deacons that kind of operated as elders. We are moving away from that model to a plurality of elders. And I heard some in our church family share hesitancy toward that because they felt like they would have no say in matters. And so from their perspective, they viewed what we were doing in this polity from a Presbyterian model, which is purely the elders are the authority within the church rather than a congregational model of what we believe the New Testament actually teaches. And so I had to encourage these people and and, and remind them that that's not at all what we believe the scriptures are teaching. We're a congregational church that has elders as the leaders. But the church by and large, always has the authority. They are the seat of authority within the church. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, I'm, I got to hurry here. I got to hurry here. It's like the story of my life on a Sunday morning. Most epistles, most of the letters in the New Testament, think about this. Who are they written to? Churches. Churches. Now, Paul writes a couple letters to Timothy. He writes a letter to Titus. He writes a letter to Philemon. And, and so there are some of those written. Some of them, like Peter writes to, uh, he doesn't specify a specific church, but the, the, the churches who are scattered abroad, the churches that are facing persecution. But even in that, he's writing to churches. Here in Corinthians, he's writing to a specific church. And, and writing to this church, he doesn't say, hey, I, I, this letter is for the head elder. He, it's for the senior pastor of the church. It's not what he's saying. He's writing to the church. So what we see in the New Testament is that it places this emphasis on the local church, instructing it on how to live and carry out the duties of the faith. Jesus also gives us instructions on how to deal with sin. And there he puts the final judgment, not in the hands of the apostles, the, 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 the elder board, deacons, or a committee or any of that. He, he doesn't say, hey, call the Pope, call the call a sign up together, get a council, and you guys are the seat of authority. No, he says, bring them before the church, and the church treat them as an unbeliever, treat them as a tax collector or a pagan. He places the authority on the church. And so throughout the New Testament, 
We see that the local congregation is the final authority. They bear the responsibility of affirming new members, selecting their leaders, maintaining church discipline, and upholding sound doctrine. You say, well, I thought that's the elders' jobs. Yeah, that's the first line of defense. But ultimately, your elders can get wayward. And it's the church that says, we will no longer go that way. That's apostate. We're going to go this way. So, buddy, you're out. Church has authority to do that. This ought to be good news for you. You're looking at me like... Nothing. Here's one point. You're not a spectator. You're a participant. This is God's church. You're a participant. Remember, he uses these pictures of a house and a body, right? Word pictures in the New Testament of what the church is. A house has many members, right? It's made up of all kinds of things, foundations and walls and roofing and internal things. And if you don't have all of that working together, you don't have a complete functioning house. The body is much the same. It's made up of all kinds of different members. And if you don't have one of those pieces, you have a dysfunctional body that's actually attacking itself. It's destructive. So these are good reminders of what the church is and how it should operate and why it's important to be a part of it. So this authority is carried out in an orderly fashion as some of it's seated in the leadership as they shepherd the flock of God, but ultimately it's possessed by the church itself. They give it to the pastor's elders. They give some authority to the deacons. They give it to staff members. They give it to committees and small group leaders, ministry team leaders, all the things in our church. But ultimately, it's seated in the church. And so when we think about that, we shouldn't look at it as a purely democratic type of thing. It's also, at the same time, a little bit of aristocratic. And yet, it's not always that. It's not just that. It's not just authority seated in the leadership, if you will, that are setting up on the pie in the sky uh, ivory tower that's not that. That, that is also not a democratic thing. I remember years ago, pastoring a church, and one of the, the deacons literally said this to me in a deacon's meeting, that he viewed his role as a deacon much like a congressman that we would send to D.C., that he's there to represent them before the pastor. A total, totally flawed view and understanding of what it means to serve in that capacity. The church is the authority. They give that authority to their leadership and, and their servants. But ultimately, we together make decisions, and we do so in an orderly and godly biblical way. And yet, we've all heard the stories. Perhaps you've even been involved in some of the horror stories of how churches have been dysfunctional, right? Uh, every church, has a, if it's got any age on it at all, has that type of heritage. Red Lane, we have that heritage as well. It's, it's common. We're sinful people. And so we've always got to work to keep one another in check, growing and moving in the right direction. And that's how we do that is by the congregation being seated with the authority. We want to love, edify, and do all of this to make our church a beautiful, inviting place. But not so much a, an address on a street, a place Better yet, a people that is a picture of heaven on earth so that we can be the witness that we ought to be to a watching world. In all of this, making disciples is what we're about. The church is God's tool for deepening our faith 
deepening our walk with the Lord. It's also God's tool for taking the gospel to a lost and sinful world that needs him. And so we've needed this sermon series. Here's what I hope you've gained from this. A better understanding of who the church is, what the church is supposed to do, but really a better appreciation for the church. I've tried to stress with grace how important it is to be in and participate with the church. I hope you've understood that. In this age of where we're at with the things that are going on in our culture with virus and all those things and and, and people sitting at home, there are legitimate reasons for people to stay at home and watch online. There are also illegitimate reasons to stay at home and watch online. And and if your reason is illegitimate, in other words, you're not in a specific category or or, or situation that would, it would be wise for you to to stay away from other people for a period of time, and you plan with every fabric of your being to be back with the people of God, then you need to stay home. But if you're just staying home, and, and hopefully I'm speaking to some folks like this online, if you're just staying home because it's convenient, shame on you. Shame on you. Because you're not, you're, you're not bringing in th- anything to the team. I love the Razorback. I'm an Arkansas Razorback. Of course, I bleed red because it's blood, but I bleed red because I'm a Razorback. I grew up in Arkansas. My undergrad degree is from Arkansas. And yesterday, I am watching the basketball game as they're playing the number 12 team there at the University of Missouri. And I wanted them to win, but I knew from the very tip, of the, tip off of the game that it was downhill for us the way we did that. And I'm yelling at the TV. I'm doing everything I can to help them. But you know why I couldn't help them? I didn't have a uniform on, I wasn't six inches taller and 20 years younger, and I wasn't there. If you're online, we love that you're able to join us. We love that you're, that you're hopefully gaining something from a biblical instruction for this, but that's not all that the church is. I can get biblical instruction and do every single week listening to podcasts, but that's only for my own personal edification. I need and have to be with the body of Christ, right? Yes. Hope you've understood that through these nine messages. But God is good, and he's gifted us with his presence and his body, the local church. This morning, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, no greater need in your life than that. I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to seek him out. We're going to have a time of response. If you want to know more about that, you come. We'll get you with one of our encouragers. Maybe this morning you're dealing with an issue of your life or something scary or whatever. If you need prayer, you come this morning at this time of response. Maybe the Lord's just placed upon your heart something that you need to respond to. Maybe it's he's spoken to you about your, your position and, and your approach to church life. You're kind of lackadaisical on that. Maybe you're online. I would encourage you to send us a comment, send us a message. We want to pray with you and pray for you through this. But let's respond to the Word of God and what the Spirit of God is speaking to us. Let's pray as Ricky comes. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your gifts of grace. Thank you for the church, Lord. Where would we be without the body of Christ? How could we run this race alone? Truth is, we couldn't. We would give up. We would walk away. Thankfully, Lord, you've graciously given to all of us, other followers of Jesus who are running the race like us. Some are ahead of us, some are behind us, some are encouraging us and and helping us to dodge certain uh, potholes along the way. Others are behind us, and, and you've called us to do the same for them. In all of this, we run together for your glory and for the good of others in the church and outside the church. 
reminded there, Jesus, in John 13, where you said that, that, that people will know that we know God by the way we love one another. May that continue to be indicative more and more and more right here at Red Lane, that the people in our community would know that Jesus is a real deal in our life by the way we love, care for, and serve one another. That this is not some sort of spectator sport on Sundays that we pop in and pop out at our own convenience. Or we come in, we, we have no desire to contribute anything. But instead, Father, may we learn that we got to have some skin in the game. Pray that you'd help us in this time of response. Whatever it is you're placing upon our hearts, give us the faith and the obedience to say yes. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet.